Daisy. And I'm Terry. And this is the Monday Monday Mindset Mindset Podcast, Podcast. where we share things of interest to us and hopefully to you. So let's get started with episode number 19. In this episode, Daisy's going to share something with us. Daisy, what do you have today? Well, this week, Terry, it's an episode from one of my favorite podcasts, Feel Better, Live More, episode number 101, How to Make Better Decisions Under Stress with Dr. Sabrina Cohen-Hatton. This is a bit of a, a reinforcement, if you like, of your episode from last week. And it also touches on our episode about choking under pressure with Sean Baylock. So yes, Dr. Sabrina Cohen-Hatton, she is a Brit. She's a senior chief fire officer. She's also a psychologist. She's got a PhD in behavioral neuroscience. And the findings and strategies from her PhD have changed how the fire service in the UK operates and the work has won 10 global science awards. So she's she's quite a big deal. She's got a really interesting story. She's also an ambassador for the big issue, which you probably won't know what the big issue is. Anyone who's in the UK will. It's, it's a system that was set up to help homeless people basically in the UK and give them a bit of autonomy and a way to make money. So the the big issue is a magazine that's sold by people who are homeless. I think there are certain criteria they have to meet to sell it, but basically they buy it for her example, when she was selling it, she would buy it for 50p and sell it for a pound. So they're able to make a bit of money, which increases their confidence and gives them a way to potentially get off the street. So she's now an ambassador for the big issue. And that will give you a clue as to part of her story, part of her background. She actually started sleeping rough when she was 15. Her father died when she was nine and her mother really didn't cope well after his death and developed mental health problems. So basically she was in an environment of neglect and extreme poverty as well. And so she decided to move out and start sleeping rough when she was about 15. And she experienced lots of harassment and violence on the streets. And she talks about this horrible sounding example of where she decided she was going to sleep in a subway one night. So she went and set herself up with her sleeping bag. She wanted to be somewhere where there were lights on all the time. And she went to sleep and and she woke up in the middle of the night, her sleeping bag soaking wet, woke up to look up to a guy urinating on her, basically a drunk guy who um, was laughing away urinating on her, which is a really common thing actually with with homeless people. This this happens a lot. But he was the one who ended up paying a price for that, apparently, because she had a stray dog that used to hang around with her and was in the sleeping bag with her. And it jumped up and bit him where it really hurt. So <laughs> I think he I think he might have learnt his lesson with that one. So there was there was a nice sort of twist to the tale that certainly tickled me. But what a horrible thing to, to go through. 
so she moved out with this soaking wet sleeping bag and went and sat on on a bench in town and and started to dry off and waited basically for for the bus and went to school and carried on with her schooling and did pretty well at her GCSEs which is quite something and as she said you know you never know what's behind someone's quote unquote disruptive behavior and please she said you know just just be kind you can imagine, you know, her day at school after going through that the, the night before, quite something. And she said, this is a direct quote from her. She said, it's unbelievable the way that people would treat you when they don't see you as human, when they stop seeing you as human. And she said she, she was punched, kicked, spat on and urinated on while she was on the streets. And very common, happens to many people. And she said she took a long, long time to speak about it. She's used to doing presentations now with her PhD and the work she's done. Um, but I think also as, as her role in the fire service does quite a few presentations. And it took her a long while before she was able to speak about it. She suffers from something we're both familiar with, imposter syndrome. And I think she felt quite a lot of shame around it. But she said what she discovered when she did start speaking about it, she started getting so much feedback from people saying that they'd been through similar experiences when they were younger and it gave them the strength and the confidence to start talking about it themselves and talking about their own experiences. And she says that homelessness is an experience. It's not an identity. People need to move away from that feeling of it being part of them. It's not, it's just, it's a life circumstance. As I mentioned before, she sold the big issue and that was part of what helped her get off the streets and into secure accommodation. And it was from there at age 18 that she decided to go into the fire service. And what attracted her to that was basically this, this team of people helping others who were in desperate situations and she really wanted to help people in a way that nobody really had been able to help her and initially she had some negative experiences sexual harassment she was actually told that she would never get promotion because she didn't have the right genitalia basically uh, well she's shown them because she's she's now in one of the top positions in the country so that was certainly not true she talks about how her experience her traumatic experiences helped drive her. And interestingly enough, I was watching a YouTube video the other day about trauma and addiction. And most of the video was talking about PTSD, but they were saying the other direction that people can go in is post-traumatic growth. And it sounds like that's exactly what happens to her. And she talked about the resilience that it had given her and that everyone is, is stronger than they think. Rongan asked her, you know, is, is there something special about you? And she said, no, you know, no, not at all. Everyone is, is stronger than they think they are. But what she did say, and I think this is important, she says she thinks that role models are key to surviving traumatic experiences like that. And she told another incredible story about her grandmother, who was a Moroccan Jew, her and her husband were trying to escape persecution and she was unfortunately attacked, viciously attacked with uh, 
guys with machetes and her husband was told that she was dead and to claim her body he had to literally fight his way through a pile of mutilated corpses to get hers to claim her body to bury it and when he found her and he pulled her out she gasped she was still alive and so they managed they did manage to get out and they I think they tried to move to America or something I can't remember they couldn't get visas but they ended up in Israel and she said that her grandmother having been through this awful experience, extremely traumatic experiences. She said she never hated, she never judged. She was always compassionate and she was always caring. And so she said, you know, with a role model like that, how could I not have turned out the way I did, have used it as as a way to grow? So I thought I thought that was really interesting and such a such a touching story filled with tragedy really, but she comes out of it as this really inspirational person. Of course, everyone experiences bad things at some point. And she spoke about how you can't control the event, but you can control the response. Although you don't always have a choice about how you respond, because an emotional reaction is not really a choice. But what you do about it, how you respond to that emotional response, the language you use, the actions you take, thoughts you allow yourself to have she said that you do have some agency over and you can potentially improve how you feel and what's also important obviously is the impact of the decision you make on other people so that's a bit of a long-winded introduction to the meat of the episode but I thought it was important just to set the foundation of where she was coming from What she's interested in is how to make better decisions under stress. It is the impact of stress on the way you think and the decisions you make. When you're experiencing a stressful incident, it takes a lot of processing power in your brain and that leaves less energy available for logic and rational thinking. And this is what you were talking about last week. And this is particularly relevant with the fire service and it refers back to the choking under pressure episode that practicing in stressful conditions lowers the stress in the moment in real life. So you can imagine in the fire service, that's really important. The firefighters are experiencing extreme and intensely stressful situations all the time in their work and important decisions are required in that moment that's really stressful. And she was called to an incident one day. Uh, Her husband was also a firefighter and she knew that the other responders were the crew that her husband worked with. And she'd been told that someone had been really severely injured and she didn't know who it was. And so she turned up to the scene trying to balance her role as a responder and her role as a loved one, obviously terrified that the person injured was going to be her husband. Turns out it wasn't, but it was a good friend of theirs who who was hurt badly. So she also then felt really, really guilty for the relief that she felt. But it was that incident that drove her to do her PhD because she wanted to figure out a way to make firefighters safer. And when she looked into it, she realized that the biggest problem was human error, 80%. And apparently this, this is the same across all of industry. 
And what they did, what came out of this research, was that they developed techniques to raise situational awareness. And she talks about the experience and the gut reaction you have and then how you action it. And the place to intervene is that moment in between, before you action it, between the stressor and the response you have. The point at which you're about to make a decision in the heat of the moment before you respond, this is her strategy. You ask yourself three rapid fire questions. Number one, what am I trying to achieve? What is my goal? Number two, what do I expect to happen? Number three, is the benefit worth the risk? So in that pressure, that pressure filled moment in the heat of the moment, you create a little bit of space. And they use this training the firefighters, they rolled it out and they incorporated in their training. The example they talked about was a more normal real life situation that other people would be more likely to experience. And they spoke about a parent trying to get their kids out of the door to go to school. They're already running late. Someone's lost their shoes or they found one. They can't find the other one. They haven't got their backpacks together. The lunch boxes aren't ready, whatever it is. They're running late. They've got to get out the door. What's your initial gut reaction? Your instinctive reaction to that is probably to shout at the kids, come on, we've got to go out the door now. Wait, create a little space, ask yourself the three questions. Number one, what is your goal? Get the kids to school. Number two, how will the thing I'm planning on doing, i.e. shouting, impact the situation? Well, probably actually it's going to make things worse and move you even further away from your goal. Number three, is the benefit worth the risk? No. And then you move on to, so what can I do to achieve the goal? And that could be anything. I mean, she jokingly says it might be a case of physically going up and picking the child, putting its shoes on, going out the door. Whatever it is, it gives you a moment when your rational brain can kick in, basically. You just lower the stress a bit in the situation to take some of the energy away from that part of the brain and give a bit more energy to being able to make a rational decision. What they brought up next was, well, surely that's, that all sounds like it's going to take a lot of time. But she said, no, they proved, they showed that it didn't slow down the decisions at all that the firefighters were making in training and that the more you practice it, the more it just becomes automatic. So she said when they were training in the fire service, they might be a little bit clunky to start with, but the more they started using it, the more it just became an automatic response that they weren't even thinking about. They weren't doing like, you know, listing the questions out and thinking about it so much. It just became a snap, 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 automatic response. So this three-step process, it's now integrated into national policy in the fire service in the UK and is actually used by all the emergency services. And she goes and does presentations to different companies and industry. Um, and there you have it. Three simple questions. What is my goal? What do I expect to happen? Is the benefit worth the risk? Just gives you that breathing space so that you can then move on to what would be a better plan of action to achieve my goal? 
The other quick example that she gave, which I thought was actually really useful and obvious when you think about it, in the stressful environment of something like a work meeting, if somebody puts you on the spot, asks you a question or maybe challenges something that you're saying, again, create that space and respond with something like, that's a really good point. I need to reflect on that. I'll come back to you especially if it's a situation where it's a little bit combative. Our initial instinct is to answer immediately. But just taking that pause and creating a bit of a space allows you to respond in what will probably be a much more appropriate way, especially when you come to look back on it later. It seems like one thing her strategy also does that you and I have talked about in previous episodes is creating that space creating that time to get out of the emotional response, Mm. click in another part of your brain that has the ability to make decisions before proceeding forward. And I think the more each of us practices this, the more successful we're going to feel in these moments rather than just feeling like we are kind of tossed about by the overwhelm of the emotional response in the moment. Yes, and it's kind of, it's like why I say it reinforced really the topic you spoke about last week because that was a similar thing, wasn't it? Just creating that moment, even though it was a brief moment, it's really getting your brain to change gears, isn't it? And to put it into the right gear Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you need to move forward. Be like, you know, trying to change a gear and going into fourth when you need to be in first because you want to go forwards. Mm -hmm. And it's that having something, five, four, three, two, one, having three questions, rapid fire questions that come in that just change the way your brain's working and get that rational part to kick in. And to get, again, to get the focus off of going down the rabbit hole of the emotional response. Because as we talked about, even with defensiveness, if I'm feeling an emotional response, like if I'm feeling I'm having to defend my view in this business meeting you described, I'm going to come out of a place of defensiveness, which is probably going to steer me down a path of response that's that's just going to make things possibly worse versus go back to those three questions, get back on track, take this time out for a second, and then regroup. That's right. And I think one of the ways that I can think of applying it is a situation that we're all in at the moment, but I'm sure everyone's familiar with and is quite often emotionally charged and combative and that's online Mm. on something like Facebook or whatever your social platform of choice is there are a lot of quite aggressive posts coming out and I think especially if you're feeling quite emotional before you're about to post before you're about to comment well let's apply this okay Number one, what is my goal? What is my goal here? What is my goal in this response that I was about to write? What do I expect to happen? Is the benefit worth the risk? And actually just taking that breath and like you were saying about defensiveness, that just lowering down, creating that bit of space, moving forward. So what might be a better way to respond? That might actually give me a chance of achieving my goal. 
I think if a lot of people actually stopped, asked themselves three simple questions before they replied in the heat of the moment, things might go a bit better sometimes. And although I don't know that I've been doing it very consciously, I think sometimes for me lately in those examples, what I do instead is I don't respond at all. Mm. That by taking that brief pause, I realize I'm not going to accomplish my goal by responding here, especially in the way I want to respond. And so I just, you know, abandon that mission at the moment. And I think oftentimes that leads me down a better path. And I guess actually you could potentially end up stopping within that. You know, what is my goal? Well, maybe it's just a vent. What do I expect to happen? I don't really care. <laughs> I don't, don't know. It, it could go different ways. But I think, I think most times, especially when we're reacting from that defensive position, basically things just keep escalating. And what ends up happening is that you just end up getting really, really stressed. And, and that's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Daisy, before you even started talking about her specific strategy, one of the things you talked about is more about her background and her responses in very difficult situations and the fact that many of us find ourselves in very tragic and horrible situations at times. And it reminded me of a quote from Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. And he was a survivor of the Holocaust and he was a psychiatrist. He talked about kind of how we make meaning of things. And one of the quotes that stands out to me from him is, an abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is normal behavior. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. And so rather than pathologizing our response to things, to recognize that sometimes our response to things is very fitting. Mm. It's the actual situation that is out of line and is abnormal. And our seemingly abnormal response in this case can actually be a normal behavior. Mm. Yeah, I've actually been reading a bit about Viktor Frankl. I believe he was in the existential psychology camp. Am I right? Do I get a point from the teacher? That's been in some of my, (laughs) some of the rabbit holes that I've been going down doing my course. He was the kind of father of logotherapy. Mm -hmm. I guess that's existential because it's finding meaning in things. Yes, you get a bonus point for that. (laughs) It seems, Daisy, that this strategy and even the example that you shared about social media is a great way to think about taking this into action immediately. Because I think most of us are faced with situations like this regularly throughout the day. And if we can start intervening with ourselves and give ourselves those pauses, ask the three questions, I think we're going to be able to see ourselves feel better in how we respond to these situations rather than cycling around the drain, as I sometimes would call it. 
That's right. And as she said, the more you practice it, the more automatic it becomes. So I thought it was quite nice to add on to your episode from last week, give people a couple of alternatives that they might like to try out that, yes, that hopefully will help them. Very good. So on that note, I hope you have a fantastic week and everybody at home too. Take good care, Daisy. Enjoy everyone. Bye.